Welcome to Radio 5G, where we sort fact from fiction, conspiracy from falsehood, reality from the unknown. And by doing so, we change the collective consciousness of humanity. A production of CosmicReality.com Welcome to Radio 5G's Other Voices, recording to be aired on December 21st. My name is Nancy Hopkins. The first hour will be Laura Logan being interviewed by Sean Morgan on the American Media Periscope Station, and it's dated December 14th, 2022. In this exclusive one-hour interview Sean had with Laura, allowed her to speak her mind uncensored about war waged against Americans and the need for Americans to speak out before it's too late. You can keep up with Laura at lauralogan.com. That's L-A-R-A-L-O-G-A-N. We will follow with an hour show I put together on the forbidden history of Christmas versus the spirit of the season. And from Ani Avedisian, we will see here some Christmas carols altered to tell the true forbidden truths of the season. Thank you for listening and have a super holiday. Be safe. Next on Making Sense of the Madness, an exclusive interview with censored journalist Lara Logan. She'll have a free platform to drop her truth bombs on the most important issues of the day. We're going to question the mainstream narrative and expose media propaganda right now. There is nothing left. Any direction you walk, all you find is more destruction. Thousands of angry Somalis and heavily armed gunmen were locked in an intense battle with the Americans. We were caught in an ambush with his troops along the frontier. So it was a policy of total annihilation. Do you think they will attack you before you attack them? How many shipwrecks do you think are down there? You've been described as the, the greatest American rock band. Is that how you feel? Are you among the last people on earth to speak this language? And if you look at the U.S., what are you most worried about here? traditional Yakuza turf. They run everything here from the girls to the sex to the drugs. We are here with Lara Logan, the award-winning journalist. Lara, we were talking before the show, and by the way, thanks so much for joining us, about how people think they're, they're canceling you. Can you give us a little bit of an update of what you're doing and, and how, how you're feeling right now? Uh, well, I feel great um, because I'm completely free and beholden to nobody. And um, and it's kind of funny, you know, uh, these cancel culture tactics. When it first happened to me a long time ago, more than a decade ago, I was I, I was stunned. Um, but 
uh, now I just laugh because it's so revealing. It tells you a lot more about them um, than it actually does ever say about you and shows you what they're really afraid of and how desperate they are. And I know it doesn't feel like that probably to a lot of people, but they are increasingly desperate. And, um, and so, you know, I don't worry about it. Um, I spend very little time on it. And, um, and that's, you know, because real journalism is, is hard and it's hard to do it when you're not part of a network and you don't have all the, you know, the support, um, base that I had for most of my career. Cause I've been doing this for more than 35 years. And so now what I'm doing is I took what I did at 60 minutes and I translated that into long form at Fox nation with my show, Laura Logan has no agenda. And then uh, now that I'm uh, canceled by Fox, <laughs> now I'm, I'm trying to do my show. Well, I will do my show on my own. And, and so I've built a team and we're raising investment capital and looking for sponsors and that kind of thing. And it will be four investigative uh, episodes, four hours for per season. And the first season will be on child trafficking and that will be on lauralogan.com. But I'm also going to, you know, we're, the model we're looking at is probably to make the first episode of every season available free. And, uh, and then you subscribe for the rest of the season. And, um, and uh, I'm also at the same time establishing, working with other journalists to establish the press club of America's press club USA that will give accreditation to journalists, it'll be a home for, you know, for, I, I really want it to be a place where um, the, the many journalists out there who know and understand the principles and the standards of real journalism have a home. Um, and, and so do independent journalists. And we'll do a big awards ceremony every year, starting with giving Jim Caviezel the Oscar for, uh, the Oscar that he should have gotten and didn't for Passion of the Christ. You know, and it'll be, we'll have a sense of humor about it, but there'll be something serious about it as well. And for ordinary people, you know, who want to meet with journalists, kind of like uh, my friend Dawn, who's who's going to run the, it as a private supper club. She said once, um, you know, be like the old days when you wanted to catch a glimpse of Hemingway in the bar, right? People will come there for that. And uh, we're going to do it right here in the small town in Texas where I live. Um, because it's important to take back the ground, right? Um, flyover country is not something to be erased from American culture and history. This, um, the people all across this nation in small towns and in cities built this country and made it what it was, right? I mean, you can find, you know, uh, an NSA cryptologist who lives in my town. You can find retired CIA people. You can find, you know, Medal of Honor and other, you know, decorated war heroes, right? And this is the same in small towns across America. So I don't understand why so many uh, people in so many uh, states allowed themselves to be reduced to two words, um, but that's not going to happen anymore. We're taking back the ground and we're putting the First Amendment back in the hands of the people. And we're going to launch this with a campaign asking for a dollar from every American who wants to be part of this revolution. And for that, your name will go down in the, in the historic record at the Press Club USA. And your uh, descendants, your family members, you can come and look it up and see that see your name there. And, um, and it'll also be carved into a brick. So we really are building this from the ground up. And um, it's, I, I just believe it's important that we have those institutions because 
So many of our institutions have failed us right now, and we're not waiting anymore for them. We're not waiting for the New York Times to give back the Pulitzer it didn't deserve for Russia collusion, which didn't even happen. And got, you know, goodness knows how many other awards that they that they and many others didn't deserve. We're we're not waiting for them to go back because they're not going back. It's very obvious at this point. So we're building and uh, moving forward, and uh, we don't care about them, not one bit. Right, we are the new media. I know John Michael Chambers, the founder of AMP. He was deplatformed, and that's why he decided to build his own network. So, totally relate to what you're doing, and I think we do need to to build it, and they will come. Uh, and the reason why people are trying to cancel you is because you really drop those truth bombs when people have a certain uh, mainstream narrative that the government and different institutions are just uh, parroting that that narrative. You question it. I've seen it happen, and it's really funny to watch the looks on the faces <laughs> of the anchors when you're doing that. Uh, but let's watch a quick clip of Biden trying to tie all of these different narratives together in a, in a, in a neat little bow. Let's, let's take a look. Excuse me. Because they support LGBTQ children and families, we have to speak out. We must stop the hate and violence like we just saw in Colorado Springs where a place of acceptance and celebration was targeted for violence and terror. We need to challenge the hundreds of callous, cynical laws introduced in the states targeting transgender children, terrifying families, and criminalizing doctors who give children the care they need. We have to protect these children so they know they are loved and that we will stand up for them and say they can seek for themselves. Folks, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia, they're all connected. So I know there's a lot to unpack in that short little clip, but interesting, he's talking about a non-binary person didn't attack at a gay club and somehow that's a homophobic situation. And, uh, you know, what about anti-Semitism? That didn't seem to, to relate to anything he was saying, but this is the narrative. White supremacists, Nazis, anti-Semites, homophobes, just trying to paint anyone conservative all into that one category, the, the untouchables, the, the unvaccinated. They're all part of this, this entity that we're supposed to hate, and yet that was his anti-hate uh, statement. So I wanted to get your feedback <laughs> on that. Wow, that's funny. That's his anti-hate statement filled with hate. That's um, really quite revealing. Well, so this is this is what's interesting about this, right? Biden was right about only one thing in what he said, which is that it's all connected, and uh, and that's why I like to listen to them and to pay attention and you know and to and stay across what they're doing because you learn so much from it. Let's go back to the beginning. You know, you were searching for a word there, and I think the word you were searching for was deplorables, right? They're all the untouchables. They're all the deplorables. Remember when Hillary Clinton told us exactly where we were going? It was in 2016 on the campaign trail when she stood up and made her basket of deplorables speech. And then they tried, you know, they, they sort of made the pretense of reeling it back and saying, oh, she went too far. No. In information warfare, what I have learned from people who do this for a living, what that's called is a shaping operation. So they put the message out there and they prepare to shape and soften the ground to make it receptive to what is coming. 
And they only pretend to walk it back so that she avoids responsibility for it, right? But now it's out there. Now it exists and now they're going to use it and they're going to build on it. And that's exactly what they did. And this is what we know. I mean, they never ever talk. It's so interesting that I went after the children there and the brave medical professionals who are doing this and blah, 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 right? Because these are counter narratives and what they don't ever talk about are all those kids who go through these transgender surgeries for years and years and years. In fact, it makes them slaves to the medical establishment. There's no quick fix here. There's no panacea. There's no magic pill. These are radical medical interventions, like, for example, um, you know, chemical castration, which is about as extreme as it gets, or radical double mastectomies in young girls, infertility treatments that render young girls um, infertile. These treatments, you know, think about it logically. We're in a moment where for many years now, the medical community has been moving against surgical interventions. They've been moving away from those treatments. They're saying, let's, let's look at, you know, how do we strengthen your immune system? How do we do everything except put you under the knife? But you don't hesitate to take young kids who haven't necessarily had a chance to figure out who they are and what they want, and your instant response is to subject them to the most extreme forms of medical interventions that exist, that are known to man today. That seems to you like a good idea. And you know, Tucker Carlson said this once on a show, and it really stuck with me. He said, how come, say you've got a boy or a girl with a hormone imbalance, yeah, how come you don't recommend a treatment that takes them back to their natural birth gender? which would be much simpler, much quicker, much easier, and if you think about it, much less radical for the child, right, for the individual, than forcing, you know, or encouraging them or pushing them towards, you know, going completely in the opposite direction. And what we know is that there is 100% a mental component to anyone who's going through this, right? I mean, even if you were 100% normal and stable and psychologically sound, but you wanted to change your gender, that is such a radical thing to go through that there's no question that there is a, a, you know, a mental dimension that to everything that you're going through. And it's traumatic. I mean, I'm a breast cancer survivor, you know, and when, the, when my family heard that and they all said, oh my goodness, radical double mastectomy, get rid of them, right? Because we want you to live at all costs. I, as a woman, had to think, wow, like, what does that mean? And what is that going to do? And I understand I'm not, you know, going, I'm not some, uh, you know, going through gender dysphoria and whatever, but let's not forget Abigail Schreier's book that they banned right, from Amazon and social media and all the rest of it. Why did they ban it? Because it was so popular, because it was so well-written, it was so well-researched, and it was on the bestseller list for, I think, two, two and a half years before they banned it, and it was because she showed through her research that more than 80% of kids with gender dysphoria, they changed their minds. And I have only discussed, right, I've been talking for quite some time, and I've only talked about the surgeries that actually work. I haven't talked about all of the botched surgeries, 
all of the kids who get halfway through these treatments and change their minds or who have surgeries that don't work. The young boy who did a video who's, you know, who's pooping into a plastic bag, right? Who's got that attached to him for goodness knows how long. The, you know, they, they, they don't tell you that awful details and the extreme radical nature of taking muscle and tissue from your forearm and trying to turn that into male genitals and you know genitals that don't ever function or work i mean this this is such a, a drastic impact physical and mental on any human being and they never ever ever say anything about the children who are not given a choice whose parents shove this down their throats because they're um you know they're either so deceived um, or they're misled or they're willfully, uh, you know, buying into this. Or as a pastor said to me recently, they're under a spirit of deception. I don't know what it is. I'm not all seeing and all knowing. But what I know is that these people, you know, there truly is a point that comes when you're not talking about people who sin and repent or make a mistake or whatever it is. You're talking about people who are truly and utterly wicked. And, you know, if you if you're someone who reads the Bible or whatever faith you come from, um, you can find it in the Bible. It says that the wicked spit in the face of God. There's nothing that you can do with them. And that's very interesting to me because I, I think medical professionals who are knowingly putting children through these kind of surgeries, I think they spit in the face of all of us. It is true and pure evil. And to have Biden up there, I mean, that man is the embodiment of evil at this point. Yeah, you know, he, he kind of says it with one breath, you know, we got to respect and love trans kids, but he skips out on all of the realities, the dirty and painful realities that you just described. So thanks for bringing us down to reality. We are going to take a quick well, break I, when I we come back. Say, when I just want to say, ahead, nobody wants trans kids to, you know, to kill themselves. Nobody wants kids to suffer. But that doesn't mean that radical medical interventions and changing, you know, trying to change your gender is the solution. And assuming that it's the solution for all kids is just basically a political manipulation and a lie. Right. There's really fifth generation warfare going on here. I want to dig into that with you. We're going to take a quick break and we'll talk about that as we get back. Government-induced inflation, taxes, rising interest rates, political instability. All of these can have a crushing effect on our investments, often causing the stock market to go down. But they can also cause gold and silver to go up. Hi, this is Dr. Kirk Elliott. Buy gold, buy silver, buy now, but buyer beware. Precious metals companies are not created equal. As a PhD economist, I have been in the financial, economic, and precious metals business for three decades. The philosophy of my firm is people over profit. I encourage you to read my bio to learn more about me at KirkElliottPhD.com. Now is the time to own physical metals in an IRA, 401k, and outside of a retirement plan. Don't let the government destroy your hard-earned assets any longer. Call 720-605-3900 or visit KirkElliottPhD.com. Inflation is out of control. The price of gasoline has doubled in a very short time, and interest rates are set to rise. How do you protect and grow your portfolio to make sure that you do not outlive your assets? Invest in annuities that have rate lock. Rate lock is an innovative new feature that allows you to lock in your rate of return at any time during the year to lock in these volatile upswings of the market. 
And unlike CDs and money market accounts, they accumulate tax-deferred and can participate in the upside of market indexes. And they're probate-free, and they can provide an income that you can't outlive. With all the different companies, features, indexes, and benefits which annuities offer, it can be confusing to choose which annuity is best for your unique situation. Let a company you can trust help you select a rate lock annuity that's right for you. Add an annuity to your retirement portfolio and start enjoying the many benefits that smart investors love. Call the Cleveland Insurance Group at 844-USA-2024. That's the Cleveland Insurance Group at 844-USA-2024. The Cleveland Insurance Group, 844-USA-2024. We were talking to Laura Logan about Biden's recent statements, and I feel like you were hinting that there's this wasn't just misinformation from Biden. This wasn't just uh, an opinion he happened to be voicing at any given moment. This was very purposeful, and there's a spiritual aspect that you mentioned. But what about the psychological warfare aspect, the cultural Marxism? What's the agenda for making trans kids the number one political issue of the day? You know, it's interesting that you say trans kids, right? Because we are on uh, the we're now in the age of transhumanism, and you know, for people who haven't uh, followed transhumanism and don't really know about it or understand what it means, it is it sounds kind of crazy, uh, perhaps, and maybe a little bit shocking, or maybe very shocking. It was shocking to me to realize when I started to look at it that. Uh, these people in their own words, right? these are not my words, these are not my policies, these are not my ideas, these are not my thoughts. This is what they have written about and talked about. This is what they plan to do, that we are now in the age of the supercomputer, right? And we are in the age of cloning. China a few years ago cloned the first human being. And, uh, and really, if you listen to Yuval Noah Harari, and I urge everybody to listen to him, because this man is... Uh, is also one of those people who is the embodiment of evil. Um, and he is uh, very influential. He's very powerful in terms of who he has access to. He is an Israeli history professor who is an advisor to Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and all the rest of them. And, um, and he talks about the fact that humans are really at the point where they can acquire divine power. While at the same time, he says there is no such thing as God and, um, you know, the Bible and religion and all of that is fake news. And, um, and he talks about artificial intelligence coming into being, which will render most of the people on earth worthless. These are his words, worthless. He says people will be reduced to being useless eaters, people like most of Africa and most of India. That's another quote of his. And, um, and where is this all leading? Well, it's leading to the point where, um, humans, you know, your brain using neural transmitters is uploaded to a cloud, just like we upload our phones to a cloud right now. And, uh, and that we, uh, there's something called a hive mind that they envisage. And people can research that for themselves too. And the hive mind can be just, you know, received messages downloaded uh, straight to the cloud where there's no need for misinformation and disinformation or news of any kind because we're basically just programmed. And what you see is that we're looking at a war against humanity. That's why it's so important for them to separate children from their parents and to separate humanity from God because all creation, right? I mean, if we, if we believe in creation and, and we acknowledge who created us, our mother and father and 
uh, you know, a, a higher power, right? The father of all, then we can't possibly be willing to do what they envisage, which is to order your child. You know, you, you decide what genes you want, what DNA you want and, you know, and all the rest of it. And they're born not in a mother, right? Where there's a spiritual bond between a mother and, and her child. They're born in a pod, right? Where you can just order up yeah. the baby that you want. That's the future. I just saw the, the German, the German have... scientist who released uh, the, uh, the image that reminds you of the matrix where there's just all these pods of uh, remote children being born in artificial wombs. Yes. And, you know, they actually think that that people like you and I are crazy for talking about it. This is what they've done. You asked me about psychological operations, right? Well, that is a very, very effective psychological operation because their idea and their vision is so insane, right? It is an actual war against humanity. And where they, a, a few of, a few people aspire and rise to be gods and rule over what's left of the human population and we live as slaves and so at the very moment they want us thinking that slavery is dead right in fact we're, we're moving into an era of the greatest slavery ever in in history of mankind and, and and yet if we talk about it we're the crazy ones when we articulate their ideas we're insane and we're conspiracy theorists and we're whatever else. But amazingly, they can go out and they can be at wherever, at Davos and at the World Economic Forum and the Bilderberg Group. And by the way, these are the same crazy people that go off into a, a retreat in the middle of, uh, of nowhere, right? And do all kinds of weird uh, rituals. And, and again, we're the crazy people. I mean, I'm not the ones going into the forest right? And, and doing so it's shrouded in secrecy um, at this, uh, you know, and, and yet somehow, somehow they've managed to project their insanity. And that projection is an, an information warfare term, psychological operations as well, where they project their actions onto their opponent, right? And so you take the blame for their insanity. And how many times have we seen this happen? Saw it happen with Russia collusion, because it wasn't Trump who was colluding with a foreign power. It was the Clinton campaign, right? It wasn't Trump who was trying to undermine the American people and democracy and introduce an, an era of tyr tyranny, right? That would end our freedom forever. No, look who has been trying to do that. When you've taken over the Justice Department, you've taken over the FBI, you know, and you've, uh, you're trying to obliterate our freedoms. I mean, COVID, let's be honest here. COVID was a very treatable disease from day one, but they forced the, uh, a protocol, a medical protocol on us that they knew would kill people. They knew that it would kill people because as far back as 2013, right? Coronaviruses were being tested and probably long before that, but at least we know we have a document from the National Institutes of Health that's dated from 2013 with Dr. Fauci's name on it, which acknowledges that hydroxychloroquine is an effective treatment for coronaviruses. So not only did they advise a protocol that was killing people, right, which is murder, but they also prevented people from having access to treatments that were already available all over the world. And they were cheap and they were easy to use. And the side effects were minimal. 
and they knew that as well. So they withheld the treatments, they forced medical protocols on people, they then incentivized the hospitals to kill people, they paid you more if you, if you died from COVID, they paid you more if you were diagnosed from COVID, they changed the definitions of what it meant uh, to, to die from COVID, right? And to make a whole new category for coroners to die with COVID. They incentivized coroners financially to give false, uh, you know, um, uh, determinations of death. And then at the same time, they obliterated HIPAA so that it was completely gone without telling us that they were attacking the Constitution and the Fourth Amendment, took away our privacy. And on top of that, they then put people in a situation where the hospitals were literally preventing family members from having any access to their patients. And they introduced treatments like remdesivir that were killing people, which is exactly what Fauci did with HIV and antiretrovirals, uh, before antiretrovirals, right? That's what he did then. In fact, look up what Larry uh, was. There's a famous uh, gay rights activist who wrote, who wrote uh, a letter to Fauci that was just absolutely indescribable because of the millions of people that died from the treatments that they put out for HIV that they knew were mimicking the transgression of the, the progression of the disease. And so people didn't know what was killing their uh, loved ones. They thought it was HIV, but it wasn't. It was the treatment. And Fauci's name is all over that, all over the clinical trials and all over the approvals for that, which is no different to where we got to today. So look at that as a psychological operation. When we say it, we're crazy. When we point it out, we're, you know, the, the, the ones that are pushed to the fringes of alt-right lunacy. But these people, these lunatics, are actually the ones inflicting this on us. And knowingly, because this is the part that people forget at every step along the way, they knew exactly what they were doing. And when they put COVID patients in nursing homes, they did it to inflate the numbers. How do we know that? Because they inflated the numbers all over the place, all over the place. And, you know, I, I always remember this doctor in Texas who said, you know, I'm treating people with hydroxychloroquine in a nursing home and we haven't had any deaths. What happened to these people? Then they went after the doctors that were actually offering these treatments. They threatened their medical licenses and they're still doing it today. Okay, this is not accidental. This is intentional and people of every political background know it. Whether you're, you know, in, you believe in organic foods and natural remedies or you're an old hippie from San Francisco or you're somebody who just doesn't trust the government and so you don't want to put something in your body. You know, wh whoever you are, if you're, you know, these terms, right wing and left wing and Republican and Democrat, these are the terms of the enemy. When we use those words, we're playing by their rules. That's a great psychological operation, right? How effective has that been? They've got us all convinced that we're at war with each other over all these different things, whether it's race and class and, you know, money and this and that and all the rest of it. And you know what? It's not true. It doesn't mean we agree on everything, but we're not divided. We are not at war with each other. And we've got to stop using terms like left and right and Republican and Democrat and playing right into their hands because this is a war against all of us. And what the people from Antifa and the Marxists and the communists and what they don't know is that they're being manipulated 
just as much as everybody else is being manipulated. All they do is they come up with ways to control both sides. They are two sides of exactly the same coin. We're in this fight together and it's a fight against humanity and it is a spiritual war and it is a war against God. And for all those people who say they don't know that God exists and oh my goodness, you know, I've even had family members say to me, why are you talking about God? Well, I'll tell you why, because the greatest joke of all is that we think the world just created itself. <laughs> you know, somehow there was a scientific explosion and this cell and the big bang and all. that's ridiculous. Okay, if you want to know about fake news and a fairy tale and something truly ludicrous, it's the idea that the world created itself. And I would recommend for people a book called The Quantum Case for God. The Quantum Case for God. Because don't, don't fall into this trap of believing that the science knows better and the science means that can't, you know, that none of this is true and all the rest of it. The Quantum Case for God is a great read. Thank you so much, because I think you covered a lot of ground there. I mean, the entire pandemic and how it's a psychological operation. I wanted to pick your brain about the SBF FTX scandal, because I remember back during Enron and Bernie Madoff, they made a really mm -hmm. big deal about these people and made them villains. But now all of a sudden, Sam Bankman-Fried is just a oh, poor guy and his, his parents are picking him up and he made a mistake and, and the New York Times does a puff piece about him. Now, finally, he's been arrested. We can take a look at the next image and they're charging him with all these things. And he seems to be at the center of the biggest crime ever with Ukraine and all of these uh, never Trumpers and, and Democrats. He was the second biggest political donor after George Soros. Uh, and now, you know, we're even asking Biden in the, the press secretary for Biden, if maybe Biden should return that money because it could have been customer funds, all of the other politicians, maybe they should return the money because it was customer funds. Let's take a look at uh, what the press secretary said whenever she was asked that question. Um, the president received campaign donations, uh, campaign donations for him, many prominent Democrats did, some Republicans did as well. Will the president return that donation? Does he call on all politicians who got uh, campaign donations that may have come from customer money uh, to return those funds? So look, I'm covered here by the Hatch Act, uh, limited on what I can say, and anything that's connected to political contributions uh, from here, I, I, I would have to refer you to the DNC. Well, luckily, she's covered. She's covered by the Hatch Act. Uh, any comment on just the entire story? Because it seems like we're not digging enough beneath the surface, especially the mainstream media is not really doing real journalism on the story. You know, um, going to the mainstream media and expecting them to uh, do their jobs at this point is like literally being on the battlefield and going over and asking the Nazis not to fight today. I and mean, that's what you're doing. You're going to the enemy. Um, these people have, you know, whether every individual journalist knows it or not, or is consciously doing this and so on, what, what they have demonstrated time and time and time again is that uh, they have no interest in real journalism or in the truth or in holding truth to power and so on and so on. We all know perfectly well that if Trump was in the Oval Office, and had taken money from Sam Bankman-Fried, that there would just be, it would be an absolute tsunami, right, 
of uh, you know great valiant journalists just besieging the press secretary every single day, calling for impeachment, calling for investigations. It it would be nonstop, right? And whether it's Fox or it's uh, ABC or NBC, I'm afraid, you know, a lot of people aren't going to like this, but it's exactly the same thing. It is exactly the same thing with, you know, notable exceptions, right? Because there are great people there like, like Tucker Carlson and Pete Hegseth and, you know, and, and, um, and others who are doing everything they can. Jesse Waters. I mean, you know, there's great individual journalists who are doing the very best they can within this, uh, you know, really kind of prison that they're in in a sense, right? Um, because you can only go so far, although Tucker Carlson goes further than anybody and does the most extraordinary job. I mean, boy, we owe him a debt of gratitude um, across this country. And so it really doesn't make any sense to say things like the mainstream media isn't doing their job. Their job has become to prop up a tyrannical, illegitimate uh, regime that is uh, obliterating our freedoms and I mean literally pushing us at lightning speed into uh, a terrifying future you know where you're not going to be able to have the choice between a gas vehicle and an electric vehicle all of your choices will be taken from you because they don't believe according to Yuval Noah Harari and the doctrine that they subscribe to there is no freedom on free will everything is a result of you know scientific probability even your random decisions can be mapped out by your data and we are heading into a, a world here where the Sam Bankman Freeds and, and all of that, they're not even going to matter, right? They literally are not even going to matter. I am I'm pretty cynical at this point, but this is what I will tell you from my experience. Sam Bankman Freed is just a pawn. He's a useful idiot. He's another useful idiot. They laundered money through him for their campaigns and all the rest of it. And now they're going to use him to discredit cryptocurrencies. Nobody can be trusted to have these crypto funds because look what happened when Sam Bankman freed at it, right? And so guess what the solution is going to be? Mm, only the, the, the government, only the central bank should have a digital currency, right? Because they got to protect us, protect us from COVID, protect us from other viruses, protect us from, you know, catastrophic, you know, environmental changes, protect us from digital currencies, protect us from the likes of Sam Bankman-Fried. I don't remember, you know, volunteering to be wrapped up in cotton wool and put in a test tube and kept there for the rest of my life, right? So that I'm safe, right? I don't remember anybody volunteering for that. And and so when I look at the Sam Bankman-Fried scandal, especially his arrest, I mean, if he survives custody, it'll be a miracle. But, you know, maybe that's not what they have planned for him. Maybe what is planned for Sam Bankman-Fried is to be pardoned and to be a patsy, right, and to be used over and over again like Mark Zuckerberg, right, who's the the perfect, you know, sort of Sam Bankman-Fried type you know, a Patsy who made it to millionaire status, knowing that everything he's done is built on a lie because he never, he never created Facebook in the first place. In fact, I don't even know if he's smart enough to know that, that it was, you know, these kind of operations typically work. You'll have, of course, it was developed by DARPA and the CIA, and that's, you know, no secret. And uh, then you'll have, you know, people from the CIA who will be at the colleges and at the parties, and they'll they'll create the conditions in which some idiot like that, you know, a useful idiot, thinks 
that it was his idea and they'll encourage it. There'll be a bunch of front companies. They'll weigh in and be investors and, you know, whatever else. And lo and behold, what do you find? You've got, you know, some uh, little moron who's married to who, oh yeah, the Chinese. What are the chances of that being a honeypot? I don't know, but it's a good chance. I don't know for sure that that's the case, but certainly if we had real journalists, you know, in the, across the media with all those resources, they might want to dig into it, but we know that'll never happen because literally we're on the enemy's battlefield. We're paying for the weapons. We, when we join Facebook and we're on these things, we're paying for them to slit our throats and to buy the weapons and create the weapons that they use against us. We're fighting every single day. That's what we're doing. And then we get down on our knees and we say, is it okay? if we fight you today and, and can we go after this and what would you like us to look at now you know and we follow all the shiny objects they throw in our path that's literally what we're doing and we just going like lambs to the slaughter because we're not like the people of brazil there aren't three million americans on the streets every day you know why oh yeah that's right because how many americans are rotting in prison some of many of them in solitary confinement without ever being convicted of a crime because of, of january 6 because that was set up as an operation to discredit and terrorize over 900 American families, you know, and, and most Republicans won't talk about it. Most Republican leaders won't talk about it. They don't donate any money to it. They don't talk about the fact that, that the, you know, the pathetic excuse of a leader, Muriel Browser in Washington, D.C., won't allow uh, even family visits. She won't allow virtual visits. She won't allow them to shave. She won't allow the, the, basically the standard rights of serial killers in this country. Serial killers and foreign terrorists get treated better than American citizens who have been denied their habeas corpus rights, their rights according to the Constitution of the United States of America. And most Americans are ignorant or silent or deny it's happening, right? Deny it's happening. What, what you're describing is, is a war against us. And it's not just starting. It seems like something that's been pretty advanced at this point, where you described the pandemic. Uh, for It's been happening for years. Uh, and so there was a chilling effect whenever the DOJ started going after American citizens. People realize, well, I can't poke my neck out there because I can't protest because the government might come after me. And that's why they're not doing what they're doing in Brazil. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about Balenciaga because there's a cultural and spiritual aspect to this warfare uh, and it can involve symbolism and it can involve just advertisements and things that we see and maybe we don't notice the first time we look at it. Let's take a look at this first clip so we can get caught up on what the Balenciaga scandal is all about. If you're a human and you have a soul, these things should bother you. Here's, here's one picture that was posted that's, I mean, couldn't be more obvious. You see Balenciaga, right? B-A-L-E-N-C-I-A-G-A. But in the picture with the little child, it's spelled B-A-A-L, as in bail worship. Oh, I'm so surprised that we have bail worship right in front of our faces. It's so interesting that you put it that way, Steve. You're absolutely right about that. I've been watching the Balenciaga scandal grow and grow and grow. And, you know, I got to tell you, I'm really proud of my 13-year-old son because he was a huge Balenciaga fan. This was his dream. I actually once bought him a wallet with Balenciaga on it. And this was the gift of his entire life 
right? And he is the first person to say to me, Mom, I want nothing to do with this. It's over, right? I want nothing more to do with Balenciaga. Don't worry. Scratch it off the Christmas list. Scratch it off my birthday list because this is one of the worst things I have ever seen. And I read him today a poem, if you can call it that, that was on the site of the main set designer at Balenciaga. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, Mom, the photographs are disturbing, but I got to tell you the words, the words. And I would urge anybody, if you are interested in this and in understanding what it's all about, is Balenciaga, of course, had these photographs with children with teddy bears and bondage and, and so on. And they thought they could get away with it by just, you know, quickly removing those pictures from their website. But it's, it's grown and more and more and more is coming out. And why this is so significant is that I know, having worked in the industry, how many people are involved in making a photograph like that happen. We're going to take a quick break and we'll talk about that as soon as we get back. Did you know that there is a community of human beings that live to be well over 100 years old? It's true. The Hunza people live to be anywhere between 120 to 140 years old. Their secret? Vitamin B17. At Richardson Nutrition Center, founder John Richardson and his family have made it their mission to add vitamin B17 back into the human diet. Vitamin B17 is found in over 1,200 foods in nature and has been gradually eliminated from the human diet throughout the past 100 years. Over the past 20 years, our products have helped customers with immune support, energy, heart health, and much more. At Richardson Nutrition Center, we have developed a product line to easily incorporate B17 back into your diet. Use your special American Media Periscope code AMP888 to receive 15% off your first order at rncstore.com. Hey friends, Dr. Michelle and I are not celebrity doctors. You probably won't see us interviewed by Oprah, but we see wonderful results in the lives of our patients every single day. We see results. While most medical practices are focused on managing your symptoms, we help you find the root cause and find healing with proven and natural solutions. Will you take 12 seconds and go to Sherwood.tv and join our free newsletter? We'll keep you up to date on new interviews and practical tips for hope and health. Visit Sherwood.tv and subscribe. Who do you trust? And should you? The small, untrustworthy group of people who own and control almost every industry hope you will not even entertain the questions, let alone put in the time to explore the answers. These two volumes of The World Awakens are an encyclopedia of trusted sources who give their honest overview of our real history, the world today. What lies ahead? Get The World Awakens, Volume 1 and 2, signed by author John Michael Chambers for only $50 each. Or bundle the two and add Genocide Jab, all three signed hardbacks for $120. Order today at amphnews.us. For unsigned and all other formats, visit Amazon or Barnes & Noble.
It says, And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Moloch, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So Baal sacrifice in the Bible and Baal worship is very prominent in the Old Testament. So Balenciaga is not the first company to do this type of satanic type of symbolism, but I'm glad that it's finally getting some attention. People are waking up from it. But you pointed out a lot of people are complicit. It's not just one guy at the top who said, sneak this into a photograph. It's dozens and dozens of people. And that makes puppet masters and puppets and people who are willing to say yes and go along with something uh, for money or whatever reason. Can you speak on that? Yes, sure. I mean, you know, this is the top of the fashion world, right? I mean, Balenciaga is uh, right up there. And so there are designers and there are set designers and there are branding people and marketing people and graphic artists and this and that. There's the front office people. There's the lawyers. There's, um, you know, the, the cyber people, right, to control the, the algorithms. There's the photographers. There's the assistants. I mean, there's literally an army. And every single one of these decisions, there isn't a detail that they don't concern themselves with. There's not a single random or arbitrary thing in one of their campaigns or in one photograph, right? It's staged, managed, manipulated. It's thought about, it's talked about, it's written about, it's sketched out, and it is shared and it is approved. It has to be approved before it even happens. And then you have all of that happening on the back end. This idea that somehow these things just happen randomly, just like, you know, I love it when you get caught uh, reporting things that are not true and they say oh, it was a mistake. Except, of course, all the mistakes reflect badly on, for example, let's see, I don't know, Trump. Uh, yeah, how did that happen? Sure, that was, you know, that was just random and arbitrary. No, it's not. And, you know, um, and, and uh, you know, Balenciaga, not only are they not alone, but look across the music industry. Look at somebody like Katy Perry. Katy Perry goes from being this wholesome young girl, and in no time at all, a few short years, she's doing music videos, singing songs about cannibals, you know, glorifying cannibalism, being chopped up and prepared, you know, as a meal in, in her music videos. Lady Gaga, goodness gracious me, I don't know what happened to that woman, but she went off... Uh, and she went so far into the deep end with satanic symbolism and everything else. It is truly terrifying. And yes, we've been blissfully ignorant and a little, and you know a little bit blind because we've been lied to and misled, and we didn't understand the symbolism and we didn't notice it. And it doesn't mean that every person you know who, who's uh, doing something. You know, sometimes you know these stars in Hollywood and in the music industry they get told what to do on the set and they don't really know that the symbolism of it. So I would urge people not to jump to those conclusions and don't fall for all the disinformation and misinformation. There's some pretty extreme things that are inserted into this narrative to discredit it, right? Like, I mean, look at Pizzagate. You know, we, we, it just, it was presented as being so insane that no rational person would even give it a time of day. And yet, years later, when I looked into the symbols of pedophilia and found from the FBI's own documents that that, you know, triangle with the small triangle inside represented the man and the boy love, why does a pizza restaurant have that symbol as their logo if uh, they're not involved in any of this. And 
Okay, you could say, well, they didn't know. It was just artistic. Fine. But then after Pizzagate, you knew, right? So you changed it. Because who would want to be associated with that? No, they didn't change it. So does that mean that everything reported was 100% fact? I'm not saying that. I don't know that. But what I do know is that there are things in there that were true. And I know the techniques of war, information warfare operations. And one of these techniques is to find something and say, and use that small detail to discredit everything else. And that's why Balenciaga is so interesting because they com the company was caught with their pants down. They couldn't deny it. There you, they were. There were the photographs. There was the campaign. Too late to take it all back. It was out there, right? And here, now explain to me, not just why children are in these photographs, but why are you making purses in the shape of teddy bears, which are typically childlike, and they're strapped up in bondage? Why is that appropriate in the first place? And what you find is that kind of thing is all over the fashion world, right? Completely inappropriate. And then you find other things like that designer, that set designer for Balenciaga. I mean, there's a few choice words for her, right? If you, if you look up what was on her Instagram page before she tried to delete it, it was covered from the Wayback Machine and so on. I mean, that poem that I was talking about in that clip on Bannon, that describes a virgin on a bed with her legs spread open, bleeding, her, her guts ripped out. I mean, this is the kind of thing that these people glorify. You know, regardless of whether, what I can't prove anything else because I haven't investigated it. But what I can prove and what I don't even have to prove because it's all out there, is that these people glorify this. They don't think there's anything wrong with it. And in fact, the only reason they pulled it back was because they were forced to, because they were called out. And what yeah. they want is And they tried to blame the photographer. Be, they tried to give yes, a scapegoat or a cover story to ridiculous. it. He's but why do they do it? Is, is it? Do they think they're doing some kind of satanic spell on us? Is it to demoralize us? Like, what is the strategy? Well, you know, I never speak to what they think, right? Because I don't know what they think. Just like when you see people on, tele on television telling you what Trump thinks or what Biden thinks, you know, you should know that, that I probably wouldn't listen to them because it's impossible for us to know what they think. Unless I can say to you, I've sat down and talked to them. I'm not going to answer that question with a, with a definitive statement. What I can tell you, though, you made a comment that, well, you know, people are intimidated, right? That's why they're not on the streets. They've seen what the DOJ going after people. Well, guess what? It's going to get worse. If you don't speak up now when you see this kind of behavior, if you don't stand up now against DOJ, there's, this window is closing. If you think the cost that you might pay right now is high, where we're headed is so much worse if we don't stand together now, there's safety in numbers, as we know. You know, united we stand, divided we fall. There's a reason that's part of the art of war and has always been part of the art of war. Well, that's true now. If you don't stand up to Balenciaga, believe me, they may pull those ads and they're going to go quiet for a while and they're just going to keep on doing it. And Adidas, they haven't had to pull, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that they've been doing, but that designer works at both Adidas and at Balenciaga, right? They've been doing a lot of things 
all across the fashion industry that will just continue if people don't stand up to it. So, you know, right now it's the DOJ going after January 6th prisoners. They could just as easily go after, well, we know they wanted to go after parents for defending their children. Now, if you go after, if you don't go after Balenciaga, if you don't take a stand now, your ability and your opportunity uh, to take a stand is going to be taken away from you. This is not a burden. You know, it's a privilege, right? It's a right and it's a privilege. You have, we all have the opportunity right now and the freedom to do something about it. We're not going to have that freedom where we're going. You know, they envisage a world where we don't get to choose the temperature in our own homes. We don't get to choose how far we can travel. Look at the Great Reset and their plan for 15-minute cities where everything is that you need, that they say you need, is within 15 minutes of your home. And if you go beyond that with your vehicle, you know, uh, over a certain number of times that they decide per year, you will be fined and you will be punished and so on and so on. Wait till everything is digital. When there's no cash, they can turn off your digital money like that. It can happen to you today. If you've got your money in the bank and they erase your digital bank, what, it's been happening. What am I talking about? Chase Bank has been doing this. Other banks have been doing this to people all across this country because of their political views, right? They've right. been turning off I've their bank accounts. I've lost my uh, PayPal and my Venmo accounts and Patreon for my political um, expression. And so I can relate to that, but just want to backtrack real quick to Balenciaga. When I saw those innocent children being forced to be in that satanic environment, I just... I felt for them, and it just seems like not only a disregard, but a complete victimization of children. And now we're learning in the Twitter files, the people who were in, in charge of trust and safety chose not to pursue, uh, to stop child pornography and human trafficking on Twitter. Uh, so no, I was wondering if that. you could speak, speak, speak yes. on child trafficking and, and how central that is to the deep state. Talking about Epstein and so forth, uh, the border, uh, why should we be thinking about and exploring human trafficking? Well, it's great that you felt for those kids, right? But what about the kids that right now are being raped and tortured and murdered as they're being trafficked? Who feels for them? Because, you know, the media um, and journalists across this country are very eager to jump up and attack me. Right. Because they say, oh, did you hear her? She's gone crazy because I speak on this issue. But you don't hear them saying anything about what is happening to children. And here are the facts that they cannot deny. The United States today is the number one destination in the world for sex trafficking. More children are being trafficked in this country today under this administration because of this administration's policies than ever in human history. More kids are being trafficked and raped and tortured because of technology today, and the technology companies know it. And you said that the people at Twitter, that they didn't do anything about it. It's much worse than that. They knew kids were being trafficked, and they absolutely prevented the things that could easily be done to go after those people trafficking them. They ignored the pleas. Of, uh, of survivors and kids who are being trafficked to beg for their, you know, exploited uh, pictures that were exploiting them to be taken down and so on and so on. Elon Musk 
according there's a a, a a human trafficking activist anti-human trafficking activist eliza Bleu on twitter and um and she said that elon musk shut down the three worst trafficking handles on twitter i think it was on the first day is what she said you know and so these people not only have they done nothing but they have knowingly aided and abetted the traffickers and i took myself off twitter and i've never gone and had a channel on youtube for this very reason because there are people pushing pedophilia and all the rest of it on YouTube and on Instagram with 23 million followers. And that means everyone at the company is involved in backing them and pushing them. And the AI is pushing them forward and making them popular. And when, you know, to answer your question directly about how this relates to the deep state, well, this is something that I'm investigating. And right now for my show that I'm going to do on my own, the first uh, four, first season, first four episodes that will be about child trafficking will expose quite a lot of this, right? What we know, what I know for sure, right? Things that I know are real is I know that there are operators in this country who have been on operations who have pulled children out of cages underground. I know that because of their eyewitness testimony, right? I know that there are that child protective services in this country is heavily, heavily involved in trafficking children. Does that mean every CPS person? No. But does it mean that there are people all across CPS in this country who have tried to do something about it and been stopped? Yes. Are there police officers involved? Yes. Former law enforcement who are involved? Absolutely. Political figures all the way up into very high places who are involved? Oh, yes. What I can tell you for sure is that I've seen evidence. I've seen evidence of CPS involved in trafficking. I've seen evidence of people running for office who don't care one bit and say it in their messages, who say these children are lucky to be raped and not killed. They say things like that. They say kids disappear every day in this country. They don't care. And, uh, and when it goes beyond that, right, when you talk about look at popular Culture. Sorry, Laura, nope. we've, we've just run out of time, but you've definitely teased us for wanting to see all of the episodes you're going to be putting out so people know they can <laughs> reach you on lauralogan.com. Thank you so much for dropping the truth bombs on our show today. God bless you in the work that you're doing. And thank you for watching AmericanMediaPeriscope.com. We are America's Patriot-only network. You can get my breaking news updates at SeanMorganReport.com. God bless all you patriots. Good night and good luck. Welcome to a Cosmic Reality Special on the topic of Christmas. Today's date is December 16th, 2022, and the subject is Christmas. Three days ago, we were discussing the origins of Christmas on the Cosmic Reality Show. Nicholas D. was led to find a newly republished video from November 26, 2022, posted on the Baggy Pants Rumble Station. I do not know when it was originally created, but it is old. The woman narrating is Carol Matriciana. The other two men who comment are Colonel Tom McKinney and Brooks Alexander. After this 35-minute presentation, I will have something to say and present. This information may surprise you. It has been called the Day of Days. It is a time of magic, pageantry, warmth, generosity, and love. For many of us, our fondest childhood memories revolve around the traditions of Christmas. 
It is a time that many around the world celebrate as the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior and Messiah of mankind. In recent years, however, the spiritual holiday has become a time of mass marketing and crass commercialism. Incredibly, many businesses derive more than half their yearly income during this period. The process of gift-giving, once thought to have come from the story of the wise men who offered gifts to the newborn Christ, has evolved into the buying frenzy we see today during the month of December. But what about the other Christmas traditions? Have you ever wondered why we decorate the Christmas tree? Why we light the Yule log? Why we hang the mistletoe? And why we teach our children to believe in Santa Claus? In the next hour, you will discover the true origins of Christmas. You may be surprised or even shocked to learn the source of your favorite holiday traditions. Chances are, you'll never look at Christmas the same ever again. hemisphere during late December, the days are at their shortest lengths and the nights are at their longest. For those of the pagan world, this has always been the greatest time of the year to celebrate and practice the works of darkness. The pagan calendar identifies this period as the winter solstice. It was during the pre-Christian midwinter pagan celebrations of Scandinavia's Norsemen where today's Christmas traditions began. As a means of honoring the pagan sex and fertility god Yule, a 12-day celebration during the month of December was inaugurated. A large single log considered to be a phallic idol was lit on fire and kept burning for 12 days. Animal or human sacrifices were offered in the fire on each of those days. Wild, delirious reveling accompanied the daily sacrifices as drunken participants defiantly strove to make contact with spirits. A thousand miles away in pre-Christian Rome, celebrants were paying homage to their own gods during the winter solstice. Witchcraft traditions hold that a number of pagan gods were given birth during this period, including Dionysus, Attis, and Baal, chief male god of fertility and licentiousness. Another pagan god from Persia, identified as Mithra, was said to have been born specifically on December 25th. Mithra was the god of the unconquerable sun, the god of the light between heaven and earth, worshipped at that time by an influential Roman cult. His birth symbolized an end to the long nights and a return to the dominance of the sun. During the month-long winter solstice celebration, courts in Rome were closed. Any and all crimes were allowed. Homosexuality, cross-dressing, and uncontrolled debauchery reigned supreme. Rome's order was turned upside down. Even children were allowed to join in the drunken orgies as part of the juvenilia celebration. By 270 AD, the Roman Emperor Aurelian had made it official, setting aside a seven-day period from December the 17th through the 24th, culminating in an exchange of gifts on December the 25th to celebrate the birth of the sun god. This Roman orgy to end all orgies later became known as Saturnalia, 
in honor of the god Saturn, the god of excess. Roman soldiers invading Britain brought with them their pagan orgiastic traditions. Upon taking root in England, Saturnalia became known as the festival of fools reigned over by the Lord of Misrule. By the fourth century, the influential government-sanctioned Church of Rome, unable to outlaw the growing number of pagan practices, chose instead to adopt them into their so-called official Christianity. The church believed this would attract more pagans to their fold. Up until this time, the birthday of Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, had not been celebrated at all. Ignoring scriptures, however, indicating that the birth probably did not occur during the winter, the church nevertheless confused biblical history and made Jesus' birthday coincide with the pagan god Mithra. The birth date of the sun god had now become the birth date of the Son of God. It was hoped that the pagan celebrations of Saturnalia would merge into this new legally sanctioned form of Christianity. The church's practice of changing the dates of Christian events to coincide with pagan festivals continued, and by the 7th century, Pope Gregory I had ordered Augustine of Canterbury to incorporate any and all pagan practices and customs into the expanding Roman Catholic Church. During the Middle Ages, the debased Mardi Gras atmosphere of what was now known as Christ's Mass had reached a fevered pitch. Common practices included open sex in the streets, rioting, murder, and a number of pagan druidic Halloween rituals. This blood-drenched celebration got so out of hand that by 1652, following the execution of King Charles I, Christ's Mass was finally outlawed in England. A religious reform movement began sweeping the country led by Puritan Oliver Cromwell. The Puritans took the biblical mandate seriously which commanded that Christianity remain pure and separate from paganism. Despite their noble efforts, the celebration simply went underground and by 1656, after only four short years under the ban, the public's demand for the legalization of Christ's Mass had become insurmountable. The appointment of Charles II to the throne restored England's monarchy and with it the celebration of Christ's Mass. The Puritans had lost England, but they held high hopes for the new world. When the first settlers came from England, uh, they were, for the most part, Puritans. They came here for religious freedom. They came here to be free to worship God without a hierarchy and without the corruption of the organized church that they had known before. And uh, when they came, they came with the clear knowledge of the danger of these pagan practices that had become so dear to the hearts of uh, their ancestors. Following England's lead in 1659, the colonies of America had likewise outlawed Christmas. For 200 years, the clergy in New England battled to keep the riotous celebrations honoring the pagan god Saturn from infiltrating the New World. The Reverend Cotton Mather had warned in a Christmas Day sermon in 1712, Can you in your conscience think that your Holy Savior is honored by hard drinking, lewd reveling, and by a mass fit for none but Borcus or Saturn? But the public's taste for sin and revelry persisted. 
In 1828, gang rioting during the Saturnalia-like Christmas celebrations got so bad that cities such as New York were forced to institute a professional police force for the first time in order to control the savagery. Christmas was not only not widely celebrated, in many cases, uh, many places, Christmas celebrations were actually outlawed. And this was because of uh, the attitude of many of the churches who regarded it as primarily as a pagan celebration and as a reproach to the Lord. By the mid-19th century, American churches were the last remaining holdout in the war against the validation of Christmas. However, they too finally succumbed as a result of the efforts of the American Sunday School Society, who began advocating Christmas programs for children as a method of filling the pews. The society argued that children could be taught about the birth of Christ through the reenactment of the nativity. They also offered candy and treats to the children as a means of enticing families into accepting the holiday despite its notorious history and blatantly pagan roots. The successful technique of bribing children with candy would later be used on an unsuspecting American populace in the effort to promote the acceptance of the pagan rituals of Halloween. However, it was the work of England's most popular writer, Charles Dickens, whose ghostly 1843 book, A Christmas Carol, cemented the Christmas holiday in the hearts of Americans forever. Dickens' well-loved story made the pagan Christmas feasts, shining trees, glittering shops, and family warmth irresistible to those wanting to experience the holiday. Coming to America in 1867 to promote his work, Charles Dickens packed theaters as he read his story to cheering audiences around the country. A Christmas Carol gripped America and destroyed any final attempt to stop the evolution of Christmas. By 1875, the Puritans had been beaten and by 1890, all American states had voted to make Christmas a legal holiday. Today's tradition of the Christmas Yule Log stems directly from the worship of the pre-Christian Scandinavian fertility god Yule. The burning of this phallic idol is also responsible for the concept of the 12 days of Christmas which represented the 12 daily sacrifices offered up in the Yule Log's flames. Another uh, good example of the um, pagan elements of Christmas is the whole concept of Yule and the Yule Log. The, uh, the very term is derived from uh, uh, the Norse god Yule, spelled J-U-L. And uh, uh, every year around Christmas time, uh, a huge log was uh, uh, cut down and uh, fashioned into a uh, fertility symbol and then burned uh, for 12 days and on each successive day a, a, a new sacrifice to the god Yule was performed uh, uh, in the fire and a new sacrificial victim was uh, was burned to death. Uh, sometimes but not always these sacrificial victims were uh, human beings and the whole uh, notion of the 12 days of Christmas also comes to us from this uh, Norse pagan tradition. In an attempt to blur the origins of this horrific ritual the Church of Rome placed the first day of the Mass of Christ on December 25th and the 12th day on January the 6th. Despite no scriptural references for January the 6th, 
It was selected as the day the wise men supposedly arrived to offer gifts to the newborn Christ. This day then has become known as Epiphany. During the Dark Ages, the European custom of putting an oil-lighted wick lamp in the windows during the 12 days of Christmas signified to neighbors that the occupants were participating in the pagan worship of the phallic idol Yule. In today's commercialism, this is where we get the tradition of decorating our houses with Christmas lights. The Yule log custom was originally brought over to America by Scandinavian immigrants during the 1600s. And despite attempts to ban the tradition, it has stayed with us to this very day. Today, when we wish someone Yuletide greetings, we are in a sense invoking the power of the fertility god Yule upon that person. Saturnalia celebrations, holly and other greens were hung over doorways as part of a pagan ritual to ward off evil. To deck the halls with boughs of holly was to acknowledge the powers of the nature gods. According to Wiccan rituals, placing holly or other greens in the shape of a circle or wreath accentuated its magical power. Similarly, mistletoe, when used in the casting of Wiccan or Druidic spells, could render a woman helpless and open to sexual exploitation. This is where we get our custom of hanging mistletoe in doorways today, and if a woman is caught underneath, she may be kissed and must not resist. The fir tree, uh, the mistletoe, uh, all of these things uh, typically uh, are uh, come from uh, uh, overtly uh, pagan traditions, uh, in, typically in, from Northern Europe, German, Norse, in uh, English. Likewise, evergreen trees have always represented sex and fertility in pagan cultures. During the winter solstice, trees would be chopped down, brought inside, set up, and decorated as idols for worship. The Christmas tree was regarded uh, as, a, as a sacred tree. Uh, the, uh, the pagans of Northern Europe uh, typically uh, worshipped trees. They uh, regarded trees uh, and groves as sacred. So. Uh, uh, the bringing of the uh, tree into the house would uh, be a way of uh, bringing this uh, supernatural uh, source of blessing uh, into your home. That was that was the whole idea that there were there were spirits uh, who resided in the trees. In the Middle Ages, the tradition of the winter solstice Christmas tree primarily took root in Germany. During his reign, King George I, himself of German extraction, brought the custom to Victorian England. German immigrants settling in Pennsylvania did the same in America during the early 1800s. In 1848, the London Illustrated News published this famous engraving depicting Queen Victoria and her royal family beside a decorated Christmas tree. And within a few years, nearly every English household had their own tree in allegiance to the monarchy. By 1900, the U.S. Forest Service estimated that at least one in five homes in America had adopted the Christmas tree tradition. Thousands of years earlier, God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, warned against this pagan practice in the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the ways of the heathen, for the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, they deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers that it move not. 
Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. Santa Claus is another uh, good example of a pagan element of, of Christmas. Santa Claus, as we know him today, is a, uh, an amalgamation of several different traditions. But uh, in most cultures throughout the world, uh, you will find the existence of what is known as hearth gods, uh, gods who uh, guard uh, the hearth and the chimney and keep the fires burning and make sure the food cooks properly and the people are warm and what have you. And at a certain time of year, uh, in the middle of winter, typically, uh, the hearth god dressed in red will come down the chimney to reward those who uh, have pleased him during the course of the previous year and to uh, lay uh, curses or hexes or other forms of uh, uh, punishment upon uh, people who have displeased him. The concept of Santa Claus has had a long and winding history with a number of diverse cultures contributing to the composite character we have today. Beginning once again in Scandinavia, Santa's original incarnation was in the form of Odin, the pagan god of thunder, a tall fellow with a long flowing beard who inhabited the spirit-infested Nordic forests. Odin would travel the sky during the winter solstice deciding who would die and who would prosper. Most believers were frightened of this particular time of year. In England, Odin eventually evolved into Father Christmas, who, crowned with sprigs of holly, travels the countryside getting roaring drunk as part of the Festival of Fools celebration. Frequently he would be accompanied by a horned goat, ironically the biblical symbol of those who reject the salvation of Jesus Christ. According to the traditions of the Church of Rome, there was a Turkish bishop named Nicholas who hailed from Myra in Asia Minor during the fourth century. He was known as the patron saint of seafaring men. Over the centuries, as the legend began to unfold, it was rumored that St. Nicholas had actually captured the devil himself, put him in chains, and made him his personal servant. Recognized in various cultures as Krampus, Beelzebub, or Zwart Pete, Black Peter, this assistant of St. Nicholas is best known by his German name, Necht Ruprecht. Described as a hideous horned creature, the servant Ruprecht was a dark and sinister figure who stood in stark contrast to the saintly Nicholas. Somehow, Father Christmas's companion, the horned goat, had metamorphosized into the foreboding horned devil called Ruprecht. As St. Nicholas traveled from house to house, inquiring about the behavior of children, Ruprecht would drop candy and gifts down the chimney into the good children's shoes which had been placed there. It was from this story that we get our tradition of hanging stockings on the mantle at Christmas time. If able to recite a verse or demonstrate a skill for St. Nicholas, the child would receive a gift. If unable to remember a verse or if the child had been bad, he or she would receive a switch or a whip. Ruprecht also carried a large sack which he would frequently use to haul away the really bad boys and girls. As more and more Christian churches began combining the pagan rituals of the winter solstice with the celebration of the birth of Christ, emphasis on St. Nicholas's role began to shift. Some cultures began to downplay the role of St. Nicholas, but surprisingly retained Ruprecht. Eventually, Necht Ruprecht was made the companion and servant to the Christ child himself. 
In this scenario, the devil is actually given the title Venoxman or Santa Claus. 19th century writer Theodore Storm, in his story about Necht Ruprecht, even goes so far as to describe the switches given to the children by Ruprecht as tools to be used in sadomasochistic rituals. Soon, the image of Ruprecht would fade from the Christmas tradition, but not his sadistic influence. Many of the early depictions of Santa Claus portrayed him not as a jolly gift giver, but of an unfriendly disciplinarian complete with a ready switch or whip. One of the problems with the Christmas gift thing for children is that it really is a religious teaching, a wrong religious teaching, because it teaches them that if they're nice, they get the gifts. If they're naughty, they don't. Or in my case, I was taught that he would leave us a bundle of switches. Uh, isn't that interesting? Uh, it's a salvation by uh, my own personal virtue. But, but there's a second thing wrong with it, and that is that they're going to get those gifts whether they're naughty or nice, because most parents love their children and, and won't, wouldn't dream of, quote, ruining their Christmas, and they're not going to ruin Christmas. They're going to give those children the gifts anyway, and some, sooner or later those thinking children are going to realize, I wasn't very nice, but I got the gift anyway. So it isn't important to be nice. It isn't important to do what is right and avoid what is wrong. German immigrants coming to America during the 1620s tried to influence the New World with the stories of St. Nicholas and his gift-giving companion, Necht Ruprecht. But somehow the idea just didn't take hold until almost 200 years later. In 1819, America's best-selling author, Washington Irving, used his influence to promote St. Nicholas in a popular Christmas story titled Brace Bridge Hall. Consulting Irving's writings, Episcopalian minister Clement Clark Moore penned a decidedly secular tale called A Visit from St. Nicholas in 1822. Later retitled The Night Before Christmas, Moore's poem was based on the tales of German and Dutch immigrants who had come to America. Intended originally only for his own children, Moore's story was published in the Troy Sentinel in New York and became an overnight sensation. Gone were the bishop's remnant of St. Nicholas. He was now a jolly old elf imbued with supernatural powers. Moore had also replaced Nicholas's companion, the horned necked Ruprecht, with eight horned magical reindeer. As the popularity of the night before Christmas grew, Moore became increasingly concerned that the story's emphasis on the supernatural and its disregard for Christ would reflect poorly on his position as a minister. As a result, he refused to take credit for its creation until the story became so popular that he could no longer resist. Forty years later, illustrator Thomas Nast, political cartoonist for Harper's Weekly, seared the image of Santa Claus into the minds of the world by creating a drawing which combined Moore's jolly old elf with images of St. Nicholas taken from his own native Bavaria. By 1880, Santa was a thoroughly secularized folk hero who had become increasingly irresistible to retailers worldwide. One factor that has contributed to uh, the paganization of Christmas, the complete paganization of Christmas, has been the element of commercialism. Uh, it may seem odd to think of it in that context, but uh, remember that Christ himself identified the love of money as a spiritual force in and of itself. 
and where it comes into play, it has a kind of naturally hostile effect on on the gospel and the uh, uh, the Christian faith. So the commercialization of Christmas has helped to h- highlight the pagan elements and to uh, drive the overtly Christian elements further underground. To me, the most obscene thing about Christmas celebrations and customs as we know them is that as a result of these things, Jesus is displaced in the hearts of children by Santa Claus. The love, affection, appreciation, trust, the, the desire to emulate these things that they should have in their hearts and minds as growing children for Jesus himself to whom they owe everything. Uh, Instead, this has been stolen. This has been uh, raped out of their hearts, in a sense, and displaced by the myth of Santa Claus. He takes the place of God or of Jesus Christ in the special world that is Christmas. Uh, He has supernatural knowledge of uh, of your history he has supernatural knowledge of uh, of your present of your attitudes he's keeping a list he knows who's naughty and nice your parents don't even know that uh he's obviously got some uh, some conduit to knowledge that is uh, beyond the human uh and he uh, he flies through the air uh he, he's capable of visiting every place on the globe in the course of a single night in many many ways santa exhibits supernatural qualities that uh, provide a kind of a surrogate deity or a substitute for, uh, for God or for Christ. Myths, by definition, evolve and change, and things are added. Uh, we, we used to have a Santa Claus figure uh, that was confused with St. Nicholas and confused with other pagan figures, and then somehow he evolved through the drawings of Thomas Nast and others into what we see today, but he had a sleigh with eight supernatural reindeer that can fly. And so the, the Christmas traditions that are pagan continue to change. But the truth of Jesus, the truth of the Incarnation, the truth that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, never changes, never will. Various scriptures in the Bible, including the second chapter of Luke, record the events surrounding the birth of the Messiah. A decree from Caesar Augustus had gone out requiring all people to return to the city of their origin for taxation purposes. Mary, who was pregnant with a child conceived by the Holy Spirit, made the difficult journey to Bethlehem along with her husband Joseph. Both Joseph and Mary were of the lineage of King David. Upon arrival, they found all the inns to be full, but were provided with a stable where Mary could have her baby. At the same time, an angel announcing the birth of the Messiah appeared to shepherds tending their flocks in a field nearby. The stunned shepherds hurried to Bethlehem and found the baby Jesus lying in a manger just as the angel had declared. Although traditional nativity scenes placed three wise men at the stable at the time of Jesus Christ's birth, According to scripture, these wise men visited Jesus later at his home. Because three gifts are named, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, tradition says three men gave them. But exactly how many wise men visited Jesus is not known. The birth of Jesus Christ miraculously fulfilled a number of Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, including that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, and that he would be a descendant of King David's. 
the, the concept or the idea of celebrating the birth of Jesus once a year had apparently never occurred to the church fathers. In the first three centuries of the church's history, there was no such thing. And I think God perhaps very carefully avoided telling us in the scriptures when he was born. We can be sure of one thing. It wasn't in late December and uh, because in the first place, shepherds don't abide by their flocks in the fields by night in late December. It's too cold. They take them out in the morning to pasture, uh, uh, protect them while they eat all day, and then bring them back in at night. So it wasn't in late December. For some, Christmas today simply means a time to get together as a family. For pagans, it is a deeply religious time to celebrate the winter solstice. Retailers, of course, view it with eyes towards making huge profits. Others use this time to reflect on the birth or conception of Jesus Christ, while many parents use Christmas to perpetuate the myth of Santa Claus to their children. In order to carry on this myth of Santa Claus, we must lie to our children. We must deceive them. We literally must lie to our children. And one of the wonderful things about children is that they naturally believe everything that we tell them when they're small. They trust us to tell them the truth. And if we deceive them in this way, it has to be destructive because at some point in their future lives, they're going to wonder if other things we told them were true. The things we told them about the Lord, were they really true? It plants the seeds of doubt. And anyway, it creates disappointment. It creates disillusionment. To my mind, the question is not so much whether to celebrate Christmas or even how to celebrate Christmas, but to be able to make any decision knowledgeably. Whether you celebrate it or you don't celebrate it, you should know why you're doing so. You should understand what the pagan roots of Christmas are, and with that knowledge, you can discount them or ignore them if you choose to do so. It is not the purpose of this film to tell you which Christmas rituals should and should not be practiced by you and your family. This is between you and the Lord. What Christians should be most concerned about, however, are the growing pagan influences infiltrating every area of our rapidly degenerating society. Recently, we took our cameras to the Nevada desert where we witnessed 35,000 pagans from around the country participating in a week-long celebration of sex, drugs, and hedonism. Here, everything was permissible and encouraged, except for the adoration of Jesus Christ. In nearly every ritual performed, Christianity was mercilessly mocked and despised. Each year, the numbers of participants continues to grow. Its attraction is expanding worldwide as it recruits through the Internet. It is sobering to witness what could be the wave of the future unfolding before our eyes. It is not only permitted uh, in the public schools, in the government schools, to celebrate holidays. It is encouraged and in some uh, instances required. But with this, with this uh, uh, condition, they must be pagan. They must not be Christian. And Christmas time, they are, they are certainly encouraged to put on Christmas programs and Christmas plays. Uh, but all references to Jesus, all references to the gospel, all references to the incarnation, all references to God must be omitted. They sing about Santa Claus, they sing about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and God only knows what else they sing about that isn't scriptural. Since the pagan elements in Christmas are so strong, and they provide virtually the, the entirety of the structure and the content, 
of the holiday. There is no Christian element in the holiday. Therefore, it becomes the ideal uh, politically correct, culturally diverse, uh, multicultural holiday uh, for, for, everyone, for, for everyone. In the 17th chapter of John, Jesus taught that it was appropriate for his followers to be in the world, but not of the world, meaning that we should be involved in our world so as to have a positive influence, but not become corrupted by it. The mighty Joshua, in challenging his people, said, Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the other gods which your fathers served. Choose you this day whom ye will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Rather than setting aside a few days of the year to remember the Lord, Christians should live with a day-by-day, moment-by-moment dedication of their entire life to Jesus Christ. Then, and only then, will they be able to have victory over pagan influences and to have an impact on society for God the Creator. To those with a heart for evangelism, Christmas time provides a wonderful opportunity to tell others about the true gospel, about God's plan of redemption, and the real purpose for Jesus Christ entering the world. So not exactly what we were led to believe, hey? But as I thought about this information, I realized this history, like so much history, was not taught anywhere in American schools and not even discussed or questioned. We did know about the Puritans and how they settled in what became Plymouth, Massachusetts. And we did know they came here to practice their religion freely. After hearing the story of how the symbols and tradition came from some really despicable beginnings, my respect for the Puritans has grown immensely. At least in part, Puritans were trying to distance themselves from participating or being affected by so-called pagan practices. The definition of pagan is a person holding religious beliefs other than those of the main or recognized religions. So in the Puritan era, anything that was not Christian was pagan. In the British realm, the, Sal the Celts, with their druid representatives, were the original pagans. Whether they used human sacrifice to elicit the help of the gods has not been proven in my opinion. There are no written records, and Julius Caesar is where this thought about druids originated. Be that as it may, the Celts did believe that if you, not, if you did not purposely set aside a time to go crazy, you would go crazy at some point during the ensuing year. They appear to understand a part of human nature that is hard to fathom. If it is true, it is easier to understand how crowds can become violent idiots burning down their own cities. And the fact that in spite of the objections of many, this crazy Christ Mass celebration finally took over in America, requiring the first police force to be established in 1828 to quell the riots. And then in 1843, Charles Dickens penned the Christmas Carol, 
recounting the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, an elderly miser who is visited by the ghosts of his former, former business partner and the spirits of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. After their visit, Scrooge is transformed into a kinder, gentler man. The treatment of the poor and the ability of a selfish man to redeem himself by transforming into a more sympathetic character are the key themes of the story. It would seem that in spite of the, promote, of the promoting the darker side of human nature with all its disturbing backgrounds to the trees, lights, wreaths, yule logs, Santa and the reindeer, and even saying the date, December 25th, was Jesus' birthday, Charles Dickens saw the spirit of Christmas being the true soul of the season. What is the spirit of Christmas? Does it have the markings of the Celtic weather, winter solstice concept of rebirth and renewal of nature and the human soul as depicted by Dickens? Or is it something more? I think it's something more because of my experiences taking Santa photos in local malls for three consecutive years. I saw something during those adventures that I would like to share with you. It is a YouTube video that can be found by searching The Many Faces of Santa by Nancy L. Hopkins. The Many Faces of Santa by Nancy L. Hopkins. Many years back in the mid-1980s, I had the opportunity to spend three Christmas seasons taking pictures of Santa Claus. It was a typical mall setting with a man dressed in a Santa suit, putting children on his lap, having pictures taken, lines of parents and children, crying, colds, and sickness. It can be quite an experience. The first two years were spent at a rather upscale mall surrounded by a predominantly elderly community with a large percentage of Jewish background. Our lines were never unduly long. The first year we had a professional Santa in that he maintained a real beard, had been Santa for many seasons, and came with a Mrs. Santa, his real wife. One morning, a very pregnant woman came over and said, Would it be all right for me to have a picture with Santa? It is my child's first Christmas. I never look at a pregnant woman at this time of the year without remember, remembering that glowing woman sitting on Santa and the child who would one day see the picture. One middle-aged man was pushing his father in a wheelchair when he stopped. The man came over and in a quiet voice said, Can I get a Santa? Can I get Santa to take a picture with my dad? It's probably his last Christmas. Really? I said. You think this is his last Christmas? Behind the man I could see his dad moving away, pushing the wheelchairs. The wheelchair wheels with such strength that the son was going to have to run to catch up. I think you might want to ask your dad if he wants a picture with Santa, said I, while nodding in the direction of the traveling wheelchair and the father figure. The last I saw of those two men was the sun running down the mall. The second year, the pro-Santa did not work at our mall. We had a problem getting enough Santas to fill the shifts. One guy was about four feet tall and round as can be, small Santa, but the children did not seem to mind. And another was a young, very young man who wore pink sneakers instead of the black boots. The kids thought he was great. This sneakered Santa had a way with children. There's a certain age when Santa fills a child with pure terror. This terror response is typically seen in children between two to four years old. The brain projects an image of what is safe, and Santa does not fill the picture. 
There is no way to dispel the child's fear as it is rooted in the fight or flight protective responses in the brain. Many frustrated parents fight with terrified children for a terrible picture of Santa, and we were told not to interfere in this child abuse. The sneakered Santa was my salvation. Maybe it was the pink sneakers. More likely, it was this cheerful, friendly voice behind the beard and the young man's wonderfully kind eyes that quieted the children. That year, the lines were much longer. Many were parents with children who had failed the Santa photo sessions at other malls. The word was out. There was a Santa who would get any kid on his lap without tears. The third year, I went to a less expensive mall. The new manager was a young lady who had problems finding Santas. Still short one, Santa, she settled on a very large man who also appeared to be mentally slow. When he showed up with his sister that first morning, I thought the Santa suit would be challenged. This guy was wearing a baseball cap, was in his 30s, spoke in a very simple English, and just did not seem to be all there. He followed me back into the area of the mall and the room where we had the Santa costumes. He had put on his, the pants the padding, the jacket. He was still just a man in red. He bent over and pulled up the fake black boot top that would sit upon his shoes, making it look like he was wearing boots. First the right foot, then the left foot became booted. When he looked up from his feet and turned to look at me, the eye something had changed. There was a twinkle in his eyes. I was excited. The suit was beginning to work. Santa would soon be here. While he continued sitting, I outfitted him first with a beard and then the wig. I capped him off with a hat and asked him to stand so I could finish off with a big black belt. During all this, he had sat silent. With the belt on, I took his hand and brought him over to a full-length mirror. The man gasped, exclaiming as he viewed his own image. Santa! Indeed it was. That year, I came to believe that the real Santa Claus would take over this man's body every time the suit was put on. Yes, I, it sounds crazy, but I tell you, I saw it every single day. In the thousands of photographs I took with this man, not one was bad. Not one child ever went away crying. Not one parent rejected a photograph, disappointed at the photograph with the real Santa. One day, a young black boy was in a terrified state, and even the real Santa looked like he was going to fail. All of a sudden, this white teenaged boy came over to Santa, picked up the black boy, saying, Now Santa Claus is not going to hurt you. All they want to do is get a picture with you and Santa. Well, he backed up and slowly sat down on Santa's lap. It's all right. Just look at the camera and smile. I took the picture. It was a great picture of all three, but I did not know how the parents felt. Oh, fantastic, they said. Oh, do you know the young man, thinking he was a neighbor friend or something? No, we never saw him before. I looked over to Santa, and he winked. I had to wonder if an elf had just visited. The most memorable event was the day the Down Syndrome child came up to Santa. I looked at Santa, who was talking to the young man. I watched as the boy's face began to smile and then to beam. I knew he could see the truth behind the phony beard. Santa was really there. When the mother saw the picture, she began to cry. I looked at the photograph of Santa with a normal-looking child sitting on his lap. What's wrong, I asked. She looked up from the picture and said, 
This is the first picture I have of my son, where he looks normal, where he looks like I see him. Thank you so very much. I choked back my own tears, looked at Santa, and said, Thanks, Santa. The reason we had the discussion on the Cosmic Reality Show was because I had commented that this season seemed to have a spiritual content I have not seen before. Walt Silva confirmed he had the same feeling. And quite candidly, Walt has always been vocal about his dislike of the so-called Christmas season. I think something is different this year. A year where it has become very obvious there is a spiritual war going on across the planet. And I also think the side that likes joy and love, compassion and peace throughout the world has overtaken the side that sees spirituality only in the form of magical divinations for control and promotes debauchery and turmoil. Ani Avdesian, who is a cosmic reality show entitled Metaphysical Martini, has given her own interpretation of some of the old carols. I'd like you to listen to them, think about the reality of what it was, and know that we can make it into something much more. I thank you for having listened. Be safe. And have a very, very joy-filled season. Deconstructed Christmas 2019, the 12 days of Christmas. Ani Avedisian. Christmas, my true love sent to me the fundamentals of philosophy. On the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me an end to offshore banks and the fundamentals of philosophy. On the third day of Christmas, my true love sent to me the courage to debate an end to offshore banks and the
Deconstructed Christmas, 2018. God rest ye all Americans. God rest ye all Americans. Let nothing ye dismay. Even though your government has completely lost its way. The elephant is full of shit and the donkey brays all day. They are nothing more than Illuminati toys. They both just make noise. They are nothing more than Illuminati toys. God rest ye north, south, east, and west. I think you're all depressed. It seems you have no common ground, and you each think you're the best. You never will have unity. You are the voice of reasons drowned. You are nothing more than you all just make noise. You are nothing more than Illuminati toys. Decent. 
Deconstructed Christmas 2017 O Come All Ye Faithful O come all ye consumers Millennials, baby boomers O come ye, O come ye And mire thine selves in debt Shop without precision And make ye bad decisions Credit card makes Satan smile Its useless gift free will defiles The interest rates grow into piles The banters praise the Lord What was a time for goodwill Now contributes to landfill Oh come ye, oh come ye Please rethink your gifts Shop for the scholastic and not crap made from plastic. Each credit card makes Satan smile. Each useless gift free will defiles. The interest rates grow into piles. The bankers praise the Lord. Obsessed with things material. Our minds have gone bacterial. I implore you, good people, to give the holes wide berth. Preparing for a season, please choose the path of reason. Each credit card makes Satan smile. Each useless gift free will defiles. The interest rates grow into piles. The bankers praise the Lord.
You've been listening to Radio 5G, a production of CosmicReality.com. Thank you for listening.